take out your Bible, turn over to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and I uh, encourage you to follow along, verses 4 through 10, as we look at living faithful to the apostles' teaching, part 2. We're about halfway through this book. We've got a few more weeks in it. Second week of September, we'll complete it, and then we'll move into uh, the book of Galatians. But it's been a really a good study. I know this is uh, some simple truths, but it's good reminders, good reminders for us as we go through this great book. First John chapter 3, beginning with verse 4. The Apostle John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And may God at his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow for prayer and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your living word. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It goes right down through the bones and marrow to our hearts. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to feast on this, our daily bread today, as we look into your word. And may it challenge us, convict us, encourage us, comfort us. Wherever we are, we pray your word will do its work in our hearts and lives. And Lord, we pray you will speak through me, your servant, today. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are three views of salvation's work in a believer's life. The Reformed view teaches that true salvation is a permanent gift from God that inevitably results in a life of continuous righteous living. There is evidence in the life of a believer of abiding fruit as he or she strives to be holy as God and Jesus are holy in their righteous lives. The Arminian view teaches that salvation is conditional guaranteeing nothing beyond an initial experience of desiring holiness. This view believes that a follower of Christ can and will lose their salvation at some point through unrepentant sin, through disbelief or denial of Christ, and along with it, their ability to perform good works pleasing to God. This leaves a believer with this view with a fragile assurance. Their salvation depends on their will and their choices, and eternal life can be forfeited can end completely, and the Holy Spirit can be withdrawn from their lives due to their Christian failures. So they have to be saved again and again and again. The third view in the 20th century, a view that came on the scene during the 20th century, free grace. The free grace view teaches that once a person prays the prayer of repentance, they're saved no matter how they live going forward. This view wrongly bases assurance on the past fact of a one-time profession, not on the present spiritual condition of showing fruit in a holy life. We at Pleasant View Baptist hold to the Reformed view, the first one. And I believe this view closely fits 
the Bible and fits the assurance of uh, seeing the Apostle Paul and how he views it given in this letter to the church at Ephesus and then the surrounding churches in Asia Minor. The book of 1 John is written to look like a spiral staircase. He keeps coming back to three themes, love, obedience, and truth. And how that person interacts with those things reveals if they are a true follower of Christ. Seems like sometimes this book is repetitious, but it's looking at things from a different perspective each time it comes back to love, obedience, and truth. So John is combating false teaching. He's probably facing the beginnings of Gnosticism, which believes that the material world and our flesh is sinful, it's wicked, and that the inner spirit has a divine spark within it. And if we understand the secret mysterious truths provided by the Gnostics, then we can escape this evil world with our inner spirit and overcome it. And we can do anything we want with this body because it's going to be jettisoned from us. And so John is speaking to the beginnings of that false teaching. So we take a summary view of these verses this morning. And the first thing you're on your outline, we see the mark of a true Christ follower is evidenced by a life lived reflecting God's righteousness. Keyword there is righteousness. The mark of a true Christ follower is evidenced by a life lived reflecting God's righteousness. So what are the ramifications of living a life of habitual sin? We see a contrast in these verses, and we're looking at 25 verses today in a very summary fashion. But verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, lawlessness is the breaking of God's moral law and developing our own standard of right and wrong, of righteousness, apart from God. This is a picture of defiant behavior, an out-and-out rebellion against God. This can be merely an inward attitude, but that it can manifest itself in the outward actions that one may perform. story of a little girl in the backseat of her dad's car and they were traveling, driving, and finally little Judy unbuckles her seatbelt and decides to stand up in the back seat. And the dad says to her, Judy, I want you to sit down and put your seatbelt on. And she says, I'm not going to do it, Dad. He tells her again, you've got to sit down and put your seatbelt on, or I'm going to pull over and you're going to face some punishment. So after hesitating for a couple seconds, little Judy sits down buckles her seatbelt, and they continue to drive. But a little quiet voice coming back from Judy to the front seat after a few moments said, I might be sitting down, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> and isn't that true? That's how we are sometimes when it comes to obedience. You see, the practice of sinning, the verbs in this passage are speaking of a habit of disobeying what is known as God's commandments. Sin, the word sin in, these verse, in this verse 4 is talking about the root problem. It's from the sinful nature that all human beings possess, except for Jesus, that we're born with. And sin in the Greek language means two things. One, missing the mark, that we can't measure up to God's perfect standard. And second of all, 
Another Greek word for sin means transgressing God's law, living life without righteousness, breaking his laws. In Matthew 7, 21, Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Believers are free from the law after they are born again. That doesn't mean we're free to sin and do whatever we want because we are still under the law of Christ. And Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 9.21 to those outside the law, as he was trying to win the Gentiles in this particular verse, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those who are outside of the law. Every person has a choice to make of whose slave they will be. You realize you and I, we are slaves to someone or something, either that of sin and rebellion against God or slaves and servants of Christ and his teachings that lead to life and righteousness. God gives each person this choice of how to live. In Romans 6.16, you should write that reference down. This is a good one to look at and memorize. Romans 6.16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin that leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. See, we have a choice. We have a choice of which way to go and who we're going to serve and who we're going to give our lives over to. 1 John 3, 6 says, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. No person who continues in their habit of sin without feeling guilt and sorrow for their sin and at some point doesn't sense some kind of discipline for their sinful lifestyle demonstrates that they are not a follower of Jesus Christ. It's interesting the contrast John is drawing here and he makes the contrast clear over and over of what a Christ follower looks like and what an unbeliever who has yet to come to Christ looks like as well. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Christ followers do not sin like the devil does. So who is the devil here? Let's remind ourselves for a few moments of who our arch enemy is, who our adversary is. Devil in verse 8 means accuser or slanderer. He was created by God as an angel. Some say he was the most beautiful angel that God ever created. Some say he was the leader of the worship in heaven. It tells us in Ezekiel 28, these verses aren't on the screen. Listen closely, you were the signet of perfection. This is God talking, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, Lucifer, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. 
In the abundance of your trade, you are ever filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. So I, God, cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. God had high praise for Lucifer, but we see in Isaiah chapter 14, the five I wills. He was filled with pride in his heart. He wanted to dethrone God and God cast Satan out of his presence. Satan is a created being. He's not omnipresent, but with a legion of angels and um, false fallen angels and demons at his beck and call, he can wreak havoc in places all over the world at the same time. Satan is the prince of this world and in charge of the world system. Satan is on a leash from God. Satan is merely God's unwilling servant. And even though he's powerful, he is limited in what God will allow him to do. He focuses primarily on believers so he can discourage them from following Christ and being salt and light in a powerful way to take people out of Satan's kingdom. He is the accuser of the followers of Christ before before God because we still sin. He likes to come and be the prosecuting attorney and say, God, look at that person down there. He claims to be a believer in Christ and look how he lives. But Satan cannot possess believers since they are in Christ. Satan can oppress them and make people's lives, believers' lives miserable. Satan has an end date and he knows it. He knows that he will be put in the lake of fire for all of eternity based on Revelation chapter 20. And he desires to take as many people with him as possible. Back to the passages in 1 John pertaining to the devil and his human followers, the people who persist in sin are from the devil. You see, John makes the point, and we see it in Ephesians and other places, that there are two families on earth, the family of God and the family of Satan. And those who follow Satan have characteristics in keeping with that family. Look what Jesus said in John 8, to the religious leaders. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Satan was a murderer from the beginning and he doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When Satan lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In 1 John 3.10, John says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In contrast to this, the Apostle John lays out what the true believers look like and how they practice holy living, the ramifications of living a life of holy living. Holy living. The contrast. Verse 5 of 1 John 3. You know that Christ appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. In verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. According to this passage from John's perspective, that Jesus had two purposes to come to planet Earth. One was to die for our sins, to pay the price for our sins to die a substitutionary death to satisfy the wrath of God so we could have the path to eternal life. Second of all, to destroy the devil. That word destroy here doesn't mean total annihilation here in the Greek. It means to render inoperative or to rob of power because we know Satan is still 
a worthy adversary here on the earth. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This God set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them in him. At Jesus' death and resurrection, he paid our debt of sin as our substitute, as the sinless, perfect Lamb of God, the acceptable sacrifice for our sins as far as God was concerned. But Jesus, at his resurrection, took the keys of death away from Satan to give us the hope of eternal life. In 1 John 3, 6, he says, No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. As we talked about last week, those who remain faithful to Christ do not get caught up in the perpetual habit of sinning. We don't continue to willfully sin against God for our selfish pleasure. In 1 John 3, 7, he said, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. He says, Our fellow followers of Christ do not be deceived. Warren Wearsby says here that counterfeit Christians were trying to convince the Christ followers in these local churches that a person could be saved and still sin all that they wanted. But John is most likely addressing the beginnings of Gnosticism that believes the flesh, the physical body is sinful and separate from the divine part, the inner spirit and the soul. And so for them, it doesn't matter what the physical body does. As I said earlier, the inner spirit in the end will be saved. John is telling his parishioners that this thought and teaching is not of God. In Romans chapter 6, Paul said, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Knowing that the grace of God is unlimited, a resource that's always available and that God will forgive all sin? He says, by no means, verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Speaking of our salvation, our connectedness, our becoming part of the family of God. It says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. We've been changed. We've been transformed. Our desires are to do what we can to please to honor, to glorify God. In verse 9 of 1 John 3, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Again, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because we possess God's seed. What does that mean, God's seed? That seed is the imparting of God's divine nature into our soul. You see, we still battle with our old nature, our old sinful nature that was there at our birth, but we now have the ability as new creations in Christ to push back on the old nature, which we didn't have the power to do before. I love Second Peter chapter 1, and I'm so grateful that God didn't save us and say, okay, now I want you to live the Christian life on your own without any resources. No, we have the inward resource to begin with, with the Holy Spirit. It tells us in 2 Peter 1, 
His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And I love verse four, by which he has granted to us, us as believers, his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. His divine power has granted to us all things to be able to live a life of godliness, of honoring God, of pleasing him. We have a new standing as Christ followers due to God justifying us. In Romans 5, he said that he justifies us, looks at us just as if we've never sinned. We have a new standing. We have a new position in Christ. We're set apart. We're saints. We're holy ones. We're becoming more and more like him and becoming more available for him to use us as he desires. We have a new nature because we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit given God's seed. That gives us confidence, security, assurance, enlightenment of the mind so we can understand spiritual things. It gives us freedom over sin. It gives us the energy to do good works. It brings to the end our old life and the beginning of the new life. And according to John, as I remind you, there are simply two groups of people in this world, children of God and children of the devil. So here's the application. The the desire to live a life pleasing to the Lord is instilled in us by the Holy Spirit. God puts that within us. And I remember days, early days after I was saved, I wanted to read the word of God. I wanted to tell my teenage friends about what happened to me, how I met Jesus. The, The language changed. The desires of entertainment choices changed. There was a transformation, and I hope that's what's occurred in your life and still is occurring in your life today. Well, John moves on from the mark of a Christ follower, reflecting the righteousness of God by how they live to reflecting God's love toward other people, especially the fellow believers. The mark of a true Christ follower is evidenced by living a life reflecting God's love for fellow Christ followers. First of all, love for fellow Christ followers brings surprising hatred from the world. It brings surprising hatred. Look at verse 11, 1 John 3. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him, Abel? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers, and whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Love is considered the highest virtue by the Apostle Paul, according to the last verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We see Cain in this passage. He's representative of the world system around him, a people who worship but worship God on their own terms. And Cain, who was influenced by Satan, killed his righteous brother Abel. Their offerings were given, but Cain gave his offerings on his terms and not God's. 
And it's interesting that God gave Cain assurance that he didn't have to give in to his selfish, sinful desires to hate his brother and that he'd have another chance to please God. Our God is a God of second and third and thousands of choices to come back and to repent. Look at Genesis chapter four, the conversation with God and Cain and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Say, Cain, you got a choice here. Yes, you made a mistake, but here's the way out. But we know that he chose to kill his brother Abel. He followed the promptings of the evil one and out of hate killed his brother. John says, do not be surprised when the world hates you because when we live as salt and light, it reveals the darkness. It exposes sin. I think of Daniel, that great prophet who faced the lion's den because he lived a righteous life. Listen as I read from Daniel 6. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because he had an excellent spirit and it was inside of him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. When the high officials and satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. So what did they do? These men conspired and they said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection to the law of his God. So what did they do? They went to King Darius. They said, we want you to make this decree a decree that can't be changed. And for 30 days, we wanted people everywhere to worship you alone. And if anyone doesn't, they'll be cast into a lion's den. And of course, Darius liked that a lot, so he agreed to it. And because of the law, the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. He made that the law of the land. Well, it was a trap to set up Daniel, who opened his windows and prayed toward Jerusalem several times a day. And they caught him and brought him. And of course, you know the story. He was cast into the lion's den, but overcame that. But because of the other administrators' thirst for more power and recognition, they wanted to take Daniel out because he was well thought of by the king and was in their way of their desires. And as Christ followers, your life lived in a way that's pleasing to God will offend some just because the way you live, because it exposes their sin it brings guilt and shame in their lives. And that's what caused Jesus to be crucified from the human perspective. In 1 John 3:15, we are commanded to love our brothers and sisters in Christ and not hate them. As Jesus told us on the Sermon on the Mount that if we hate someone, it's the same as murdering them in his eyes, in God's eyes. Hate can be passive. It can be just a thought or it can become active all the way to different degrees to the point of murdering someone. The difference between the two is whether hatred is acted upon or not, but it is still hatred. And those who are characterized by continual, unchecked, hateful attitudes are evidence of an unregenerate heart. 
Then we see the love for fellow Christ followers is shown by our works. The key word there is shown. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. Love our fellow Christ followers is shown by our works. In 1 John 3.16, by this we know love that Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in them? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Folks, most of us in this room can quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But do you follow 1 John 3.16? By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We're to show sacrificial love to our brothers and sisters that we are in relationship with. In James 2, he said, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Here are some thoughts when we as Christians are confronted with needs around us and to understand what we can and what we cannot do. One, if you have the means necessary Be discerning as you consider helping a fellow brother and sister in Christ or even someone who is not a believer. Do you have the necessary means to do that? And that's not always money. That could be your time. That could be your skill. That could be a lot of things. Second of all, make sure you understand the need at hand with the person. Get the context. Get the background. Make sure it's a legitimate need. And and define what that need is so you can best meet that need, or find someone who can help meet that need. And thirdly, be loving enough to be willing to share. That could be your money. That could be your time. That could be a word of encouragement. It could be prayer. It could be a lot of different things. Finding someone who is better able to meet that need. A believer who is too poor to help or who is ignorant of his brother's need is not condemned. But a believer who hardens his heart against his needy brother is condemned. We can't show indifference. One reason is Christians should work, according to Ephesians 4.28, we work so that we may be able to, quote, share with anyone in need, end of quote, according to Paul. This doing good need not be in terms, as I mentioned, of money or material supplies. It could be your personal service. It could be giving of oneself to others. There are many individuals in our churches who lack love and would welcome Friendship. There was a story of a a Christian woman and she was at a a church meeting and they were sharing testimonies and she was talking about how she just can't develop the habit of personal devotions in her life. She had several small children. Her husband worked and traveled for his job and the things of the day just kept getting in the way for her to find time to be alone with God and to get into his word and to pray. The next morning, early, there was a knock at her door and two of the ladies that were in that meeting showed up and said, we're here to take over. You go in your bedroom, you spend time in the word and pray. We're gonna come every morning until you can get that habit developed in your life. And sure enough, those two dear ladies did that till she felt comfortable of rearranging her schedule and making that a priority. 
You see, to love in word means simply to talk about a need, but to love in deed means to do something about meeting it. To love and talk is the opposite of to love in truth. It means to love insincerely. To love in truth means to love a person genuinely from the heart and not just pay it lip service. People are attracted by genuine love but repelled by hypocritic love. One reason why sinners were attracted to Jesus was because they were sure he loved them sincerely. So love for fellow Christ followers is evidenced by our standing on the truth of God's word. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. We're supposed to be about the process of showing our love for others by our works and then by standing on the truth of God's word. Look at verses 19 through 23. By this we shall know that you are of the truth and we are sure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Notice he says there in verse 19, reassure our heart. If we have love in action, we know we are in the truth. We must be careful even as Christians to not let our feelings overtake the spiritual truths that we know from God's word and the Holy Spirit. Our feelings can be fickle and fool us at times. So we rely more on the word of God. And a heart that is disarmed of any sinful accusations doesn't condemn them, but gives confidence to bring our prayers to God. Having a clear conscience is a benefit of our salvation and gives us confidence that we can boldly approach God's throne with what's on our hearts. Ephesians 2.18, Paul said, For through Christ we both have access and one spirit to the Father. And we have access to him 24-7, every hour, every waking hour of this day, but also throughout the weeks and the years and the month. We, he is there to hear us and listen to us. And we can have God answer our prayers, and this is evidence, another evidence, that we are Christ's followers. Prayer is answered because we have heartfelt obedience to the Father's will, motivated by love and our desire to do God's will. The Bible says, Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock, and you'll receive it. Jesus said, ask in my name and it will be granted to you. He said, ask in the will of God for his honor and his glory and he will answer. What a great hope and promise that we have. Let's look at verse 24, the last verse we're gonna look at today, the end of this chapter. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. We see in this last, cha- last verse of chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit empowers Christ's followers to practice righteousness. He persuades them to keep his commandments. Later on in 1 John, we're going to say, he says that God's commandments are not burdensome, but joyful. And he also wants to lead us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. The application here is the desire to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ comes through us 
because of the love and mercy that God is pouring out on us day by day. He's revealing, he's showing it to us. So what we have, we are a conduit to share with others, our brothers and sisters in need, in need of encouragement or whatever it may be. Here's our key thought as we close this morning. We are resting and abiding. That's a great place to be. We can rest, we can be confident, we can be assured in a humble way, not an arrogant way. We're resting and abiding in Christ by the inward motivation of the Holy Spirit displayed in our lives by our works and our love for our fellow Christ followers. Man, what an awesome thing that we can rest, that we have that peace that passes all understanding. And not only for ourselves, but to be shared with others. So as we close today, I want to focus on these three questions, especially number three, as we pray. First of all, what are the barriers and obstacles that you battle with to live a holy life? What are the things that you deal with on a daily basis that diminish your desire or your ability to live a righteous life for him? Second of all, what are some small steps this week you could take to overcome the steps that prevent you from living a holy life? What can you do about that obstacle or that barrier or that that bad habit that needs to become a good habit? What do you need to do to help you overcome and live a more holy, righteous life? And the third one I want to encourage you to pray about this week. And maybe someone is already on your heart. What can you do this week to respond in love to a fellow Christ follower in need? Maybe it's going to visit one of our shut-ins and just give of your time and praying with them. Maybe you know someone who just needs a time to meet together for coffee to encourage them. Maybe it's a monetary thing. Maybe you have the skill to be able to do something to help them make life easier working around their house. Whatever it may be, I encourage you to pray about how you can respond in love to a fellow Christ follower this week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John's perspective on these things. We thank you, Lord, that he makes it crystal clear what it looks like to be part of the family of God, but also the family of Satan. And Lord, may we be good at examining our hearts and our lives to make sure that we are part of God's forever family. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to look around and to be asking ourselves every day, is there someone in need that I can help Is there someone who you've given me the resources to go and work with and provide and share what you've given to me to help make their way a little easier, to give them hope, to give them encouragement and comfort and to meet a need that maybe they're struggling with? Help us to have eyes to look for those needs this week and may we be your ambassadors to go and to meet people's needs. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.